Today we reach the end of our sermon series on women in the book of Judges. We've had a a two-week break and now we're back and we're at the end of the book of Judges. And I need to warn you that this is probably the most horrific story in the Bible. But we're still going to read it together. So I invite you to take a deep breath. And if at any point in this story you begin to feel distressed, return to those deep breaths, okay? And I'm not going to make you say thanks be to God when we've finished reading this. This is from Judges chapter 19. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and there was a certain Levite living as an immigrant in the far corners of the Ephraim highlands. He married a secondary wife from Bethlehem in Judah. In an act of unfaithfulness toward him, his secondary wife left him and went back to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. She stayed there for full months. Then her husband set out after her to convince her to come back. He had his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. She took him into her father's house, and when the young woman's father saw him, he was happy to welcome him. Since his father-in-law, the young woman's father, insisted, he stayed with him three days, eating, drinking, and spending the night there. On the fourth day, they got up early in the morning, and he got ready to set out. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Eat a little food to give you strength, and then you can go. So the two of them sat down and ate and drank together. The young woman's father said to the man, Why not spend the night and enjoy yourself? When the man got ready to set out again, his father-in-law persuaded him, and he spent the night there again. On the fifth day, he got up early in the morning to set out, and the young woman's father said to him, Have some food for strength. So the two of them ate, sitting around until late in the day. When the man got ready to set out with his secondary wife and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said, Look, the day has turned to evening, so spend the night. Seriously, the day is over. Spend the night here and enjoy yourself. Then you can get up early tomorrow for your journey, and you can head home. But the man was unwilling to spend another night. He got up, set out, and went as far as the area of Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had a couple of saddled donkeys and his secondary wife with him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was totally gone. The servant said to his master, Come on, let's turn into this Jebusite city and spend the night in it. But his master replied to him, We won't turn into a city of foreigners who aren't Israelites. We'll travel on to Gibeah. Come on, he said to his servant, let's reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they traveled on. And the sun set when they were near Gibeah in Benjamin. They turned in to enter there so they could spend the night in Gibeah. And he sat, went and sat down in the city square, but no one offered to take them home to spend the night. Then in the evening, an old man was coming home from his daily work in the fields. This man was from the Ephraim highlands and was an immigrant in Gibeah. 
the people of that place being Benjaminites. He looked up and saw the traveler in the city square. Where are you heading and where have you come from, the old man asked. We're traveling from Bethlehem in Judah to the far corners of the Ephraim Highlands, he replied to the old man. That's where I'm from. I went to Bethlehem in Judah and I'm heading home. But no one has offered to take me in tonight. We've got our own straw and feed for our donkeys, plus food and wine to provide for me, the woman, and my servant with us. We don't need anything. The old man answered, you're welcome to stay with me, but let me take care of all your needs. Just don't spend the night in the square. And he took them into his house. He mixed feed for the donkeys, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. While they were relaxing, Suddenly, the men of the city, a perver perverse bunch, surrounded the house and started pounding on the door. They said to the old man, the owner of the house, send out that man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to him, no, no, my friends, please don't commit such an evil act, given that this man has come to my house as a guest. Don't do this disgraceful thing. Here's my daughter, the young woman and his secondary wife. Let me send them out. And you can abuse them and do whatever you want to them. But don't do such a disgraceful thing to this man. But the men refused to listen to him. So the Levite grabbed his secondary wife and sent her outside to them. They raped her and abused her all night long until morning. They finally let her go as dawn was breaking. At daybreak, the woman came and collapsed at the door of the man's house where her husband was staying where she lay until it was daylight. When her husband got up in the morning, he opened the doors of the house and went outside to set out on his journey. And there was his secondary wife, lying at the entrance of the house with her hands clutching the doorframe. Get up, he said to her, let's go. But there was no response. So he laid her across a donkey, and the man set out for home. When he got home, he picked up a knife, took his secondary wife, and chopped her, limb by limb, into 12 pieces. Then he sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who, said it, who saw it said, has such a thing ever happened or been since the time when the Israelites came up from the land of Egypt until today. Think about it, decide what to do, and speak out. This story appears in our sacred scriptures. Let's respond with a few moments of silence.
God, be gracious to us as we remember difficult things. Amen. Like Jephthah's daughter, her name is not known to us. This woman whose body was handled by every tribe of Israel somehow remains nameless, though she must have been the most talked about woman in the nation. He shipped her parts through the postal service like a mass mailing. Before the days of the printing press, he used her flesh and bone and made a tabloid out of her. Can you imagine anybody who wasn't talking about her? I heard the tribe of Gad got her feet and ankles. The tribe of Reuben received her left arm. Judah got the head. It sounds utterly disgusting and totally inappropriate for dinner table talk, but you know as well as I that people are drawn to scandal like bees to honey. Everyone was talking about her, even if they didn't know her name either. It's hard to ignore the bloody stump of a leg that shows up on the village doorstep after all. She was known and examined and discussed by all, yet not really known at all. Like I said, we don't even know her name. What we do know is that she is the concubine or the second wife of a Levite man. Levites, you may remember, are supposed to be special men set apart for God. She, on the other hand, is less than even the wife of a Levite. She is secondary, added later, whether for children or for pleasure or both. He owns her. Thus, the beginning of her story is really quite remarkable because she leaves him. If you think divorce is hard now, try being a woman in ancient Israel. Leaving was not an option for women in those days, but somehow, we don't know how, she makes it an option for herself. When the story begins, she is a very independent woman. Now, why she left actually depends on which ancient manuscript you read. The Hebrew and Syriac claim that she played the harlot, while the Greek and Old Latin say that she became angry and left. The common English Bible I read today translates it in an act of unfaithfulness toward him, his secondary wife left him. Whatever the reason, she has to travel a great distance alone, probably, to return to the one place she might be safe after leaving her husband, her father's house. Now, she stays with her husband for four full months, but after all that time has passed, her husband decides he wants her back. Our translation today says he sets out to convince her to come back, but a better translation of the Hebrew would be to say he set out to speak to her heart. Scholar Phyllis Tribble notes the words to speak to her heart connote reassurance, comfort, loyalty, and love. However, once he arrives at her father's house, the only conversation that occurs is between the two men. The father appears to extend hospitality to the husband, but then he keeps extending it like almost obnoxiously. The husband stays five days, and it takes eight verses out of 30, more than a quarter of the story, just to hear about two men eating a lot. 
We don't know if the father is trying to delay his daughter's departure or maybe bargain somehow so as to ensure her better treatment, but some kind of contest is happening between them. It's unclear what the two men are actually fighting over, but it's clearly not about who has to eat the leftovers. Something is at stake. We don't know what exactly, but ultimately the father loses the fight and the husband departs. Only now, it is late in the day, and there is no way they can make it home by nightfall. They will have to stop. There is still no conversation between the Levite and his concubine wife, but his servant suggests that they stay the night in a Jebusite city. The Levite does not want to stay among foreigners, however, probably out of concern for their safety, and so they travel on to Gibeah. Only then they sit in the city square, unattended, No one offers them a place to stay. Finally, along comes an old man from the Ephraim Highlands who now lives in Gibeah. The Levite is also from the Ephraim Highlands, so they have this immediate connection, and the old man invites them to stay. From here, the story grows quickly horrific. As they are relaxing as guests in the old man's home, men of the city surround the house and pound on the door. Like the attempted gang rape of Lot's visitors at Sodom and Gomorrah, these men demand access to the main guest, the man. Remember, rape is about power, not sex. So they desire to conquer what will make them feel most powerful. They do not ask for any of the women or any of the male servants. They want the head of the party. They want to prove that they can take whatever they want whenever they want it. But the old man pleads with them, no, no, please, please don't commit such an evil act given that this man has come into my home as my guest. Don't do this disgraceful thing, or in the RSV translation, this vile thing. Then he says this, here is my daughter and my secondary wife. Let me send them out and you can abuse them and do whatever you want to them. Actually, more literally, what he says is this, quote, ravish them and do to them the good in your eyes. Remember the line from our last judge's story? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was good in his own eyes. Now, listen, I'm not going to suggest that the old man made this offer without pain in his heart. I'm not suggesting he wanted to do this or that it was easy for him. Hell, it was quite possibly gut-wrenching. He was a father for Pete's sakes, and by all accounts thus far, a good and generous man. But notice the contrast in his speech. When the men want to do something to his male guest, he calls it vile and evil. When he offers to women, he invites the men to ravish them, saying, do what is good in your eyes. Evil, good. Same act, different victim. This, my friends, is why men, and not just women, need to be liberated from patriarchy too, because it is his sense of hospitality not his perverseness that made him willing to sacrifice his daughter. He thought he was choosing a lesser evil, 
a moral logic which only works if the wider worldview says women are lesser and accepts it as fact. That means he was likely a good-hearted man caught in an evil system, making evil choices he thought were good ones. He thought he was protecting his guest and doing right by him. Let's pause on the old man here, because the vast majority of men I know are him. They are kind and generous and hospitable and resistant to evildoers. But if it comes down to a choice between protecting the person with more power, protecting his fellow man, or defending the marginalized woman, he will choose the preservation of the brotherhood over the dignity of the woman nearly every time. Feminists have a term for this brother. He is called the benevolent patriarchy. It's the nice guys who think they care, who do care, until their own necks are on the line or their brother's neck is on the line and suddenly the good old boys club matters more than justice, matters more than the woman or women right in front of his face who are suffering. Now while I'm on the subject of uncomfortable truth-telling, let me also note that the vast majority of white women also don't behave any better towards women of color than the old man behaves. So this isn't a finger-pointing session. I'm, I'm guilty, too. But the scriptures tell us that truth has the power to set us free, and so I have committed myself to seeing and knowing the truth, even when, especially when, it indicts me. The old man tries to distract the mob of men, but he is unpersuasive. Next, the Levite, seeing that the words and the promises aren't working, does the only thing he can think of doing that might distract them from their target. He gives them a body, a human body. He shoves her outside and slams the door behind her before anyone can gain a foothold inside. And it works. His plan works. The evil men leave him alone. He is safe. The same cannot be said for her. She is raped and abused all night long until daybreak when they finally release her. She returns to the old man's house, probably because she has nowhere else to go, and she collapses at the doorstep. When her husband gets up in the morning because somehow he was able to sleep, the text says he opened the doors of the house and went outside to set out on his journey as if he was prepared to leave without her. Only there at the entrance of the house she lies, interrupting his departure, her fingers clutching the door frame, reaching for that door that separated her from safety. Get up, he says. Let's go. These are the first words and the only words he speaks to her in this story. Remember how he went to his father-in-law's house to speak to her heart, to convince her to come back? But this is all he ever says to her, get up, let's go. Lots of woo, that one. How did he go from wanting to woo her back to being willing to throw her to the wolves and leave without her? Had he convinced himself that she deserved it? When he sees her, does he does not rush to her side. He simply demands, get up. 
but she makes no response. Perhaps we are to assume she has died, but the narrator is not clear about that. We don't know if she is passed out or unable to speak because of the pain or if she is dead. What we know is that without ceremony or any show of grief or remorse, he picks her up, takes her home, and chops up her body with a knife. He sends her pieces to the 12 tribes of Israel, after which everyone says, has such a thing ever happened or been since? Consider, take counsel, and speak. Only the word consider is a translation of the Hebrew idiom direct to her heart. In other words, they witness her mutilated body and say, speak to her heart, take counsel and speak. And for a brief moment, I feel this glimmer of hope that the nation will do what the husband has failed to do, that even though her life is gone, they will still find a way to speak to her heart. But my hopes are quickly dashed because this is how Israel responds, with war. They go to war against the Benjaminites, the tribe from whom the rapist came, and tens of thousands of soldiers are slain on both sides. It gets worse. Israel eventually wins out against the Benjaminite tribe, and they massacre their city, all the people, women, children, even animals. Only 600 men escape, but it gets worse. After the war is over, the Israelites realize the poor Benjaminites have no way to procreate because everyone in their tribe is dead except 600 men. And so to remedy this tragedy, they slaughter all the people in Jabesh Gilead except for the virgins. And then they give the remaining 400 virgins to the lonely Benjaminites. But it gets worse. There were only 400 virgins in Jabesh Gilead, and there are 600 Benjaminite men. So if you do the math, they need 200 more. So to remedy that, they abduct 20 women from Shiloh. In other words, the rape of one quickly escalates into the rape of 600, not to mention the slaughter of thousands more. And this is how the book of Judges ends. No redemption, no reconciliation, no resurrection. The book concludes, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There is nothing left to do with this story but to write the next chapter ourselves. There is nothing left to do but to speak to, our, but to, speak to her heart ourselves because no one else would. My friends, do not run away from this story because it is uncomfortable and agonizing. Pledge to see the arenas in our own times where this story still plays out. You may think that this story is far removed from our own, but it is not. When I think of her body chopped into pieces, I think of every victim of assault who has ever tried to tell what has happened to her and the way we tear her story to shreds shreds looking for holes. When I think of her husband cutting her up like that as if she hadn't already been through enough, I think of the way survivors must get rape kits for proof which feels like being violated all over again. I think of how retelling the story can be as, as traumatizing as living it 
And bonus, when you tell it, there's often an audience to drive home your feelings of humiliation and to cast suspicion and doubt onto your reality. I think about the internet and how easy it is to chew someone up and spit them back out. How cyberbullying and trolling make the experience of telling your truth all the more excruciating because you can't talk about it without being abused. And if you stay quiet, they abuse you for that too. Why didn't you speak up sooner? When I think about her death, I think about how many victims never get to tell their own stories, either because they don't live to tell it, or because the media, or the abuser, or the family mistells it for them. When I think about her failed attempt to leave her husband, I think about how hard it is to leave and stay away, even when you might be safer on your own. I think about how impossible it can be to really get away, to recover your own worth in a culture that refuses to acknowledge it. I think about how real her story is today in the 21st century, and I implore you, please do not just walk away. I think about how Ruth and Naomi and Hannah, the mother of Samuel, were all contemporaries of this unnamed concubine wife. Women who lived during the period of judges and were seen and heard by God and by their communities. This tells me that horror and honor can coexist in the same space. We can live in a time where women have more opportunity than women have ever had before, and some women are brutalized and terrorized on a daily basis. Most women are caught somewhere in between. Do not run away from seeing her reality. My friends, speak to her heart. Speak to her heart in this way. Believe her. Understand that it is not your job to cross-examine. Believe her. I'm not saying that if you're in a jury in a courtroom, you should ignore evidence against her. I'm saying if she comes to you in private looking for a confidant, believe her. I'm saying, if you hear her testimony secondhand or in the public forum, believe her. At the very least, don't victim blame her, don't shame her, don't chop her to pieces. If you have your doubts, at the very least, don't say them out loud. Because even if she is a part of the 2 to 7% of false accusers, and she likely isn't, even if she is, what you say about her will be overheard by other survivors. And they will hear your doubt of her as doubt of them, and they will take note that you are not safe to tell their stories to. They will hear your doubt of her, and for some, it will trigger long-standing PTSD symptoms. You won't know it, but your comment will be what sends her to the therapist office this week. That is, if she's lucky and can afford a therapist. If she's lucky and has actually found a good one if she didn't choose an easier but more destructive form of coping instead. Speak to her heart. Speak to her heart by listening. God has not called you to be a commentator on other people's trauma. Speak to her heart by seeing that she has one and knowing that it bleeds. It is not your story to cut up and dissect. Her story is not for your entertainment. She is not an intellectual exercise. She is not your debate topic or your dinner gossip. She is a person. You are not the expert on her life 
on what she should or could have done or could or should do now. You will never be the expert. It is her story and her life. She is the expert. Speak to her heart by not speaking at all unless you have something healing to say. And don't assume you know how to speak a healing word either. Listening is always a good option. Just don't make her talk if she doesn't want to. Speak to her heart. Speak to her heart by respecting and honoring her pain. Do not call her emotional or extreme or too late or irrational or hysterical or over the top. Tell her she is a sane person dealing with insane circumstances. If you can't see that, you are the crazy one. Speak to her heart by refusing to excuse violence. Do not say boys will be boys or we all did stupid things in high school. All of us may have done stupid, but some of us did assault. And if you assaulted someone, stop conflating it with stupidity. Start calling it what it is and start making amends. Look, I get it that our culture sends all sorts of wrong messages to boys about what it means to be a man and how to pursue a woman and not take no for an answer. The culture does not honor consent or make it sexy. So it is hard work to get beyond the cultural messaging and find a different way to be. But just because the culture encourages rape and promotes coercion, that doesn't make men not guilty. What it means is that patriarchy and rape culture are real and pervasive and invasive, and it's not just that it could or might affect you, it has affected you. Rape culture and patriarchal thinking are embedded in your psyche. They are the air you breathe when you wake up in the morning, and if you don't see that, that poison will stay inside you, harming you and others until the day you die. Speak to her heart by making a lifetime commitment, because I guarantee you it will take a lifetime to confront the sexism that lives and breathes in you. The best bet your children and grandchildren have to overcoming the toxicity of sexism is to see the ongoing work of liberation practiced and modeled in you as you set yourself free one revelation, one choice, one repentance at a time. My friends, speak to her heart. Don't let the story end here. Write the next chapter. Speak to her heart. Amen.